As you know, a few weeks ago, we began a new series. We're going to be hearing straight from the Lord Jesus, and all the sermons are going to be teachings of Christ for the next year. Uh, And for the past two weeks, I've actually been trying to talk all of you out of becoming followers of Christ. Now, obviously, you keep coming back, so either you're gluttons for punishment or you're really serious about this Jesus thing. But here's my last chance today, the third time I'm trying to actually talk you out of being a follower of Jesus Christ. If you make it through today, maybe you're good. Uh, next week, we're going we're gonna to actually get back to some, um, to some less controversial and less uh, tough topics. Next week, we're going to hear a sermon about how Jesus claimed to be God claimed to be God. So bring the person next week who's told you, Jesus never claimed to be God, uh, because we're going to go down that road next week. But for now, what I've been trying to do is show you the cost of discipleship. Jesus is trying to talk the crowd out of following him by telling them the true cost of being a follower of Jesus Christ. And those that left, he let them go. But those that stayed, he showed them what it meant to be a true disciple of Christ. So let's pray, and then this morning we'll talk uh, about the cost of discipleship. Father above, we thank you, Lord, that you have been at work through these sermons for the past couple weeks. And Jesus, you don't make it easy. Two weeks ago, you said following you would feel like living on death row. Last week, you said that following you will make us feel like we are homeless in this world uprooted. This week, you talk to us about how we need to leave our sin behind. I praise you, Lord, for your honesty at the cost, and my prayer is that we would have ears to hear and hearts to listen as you speak to us today. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. To give you your bearings, the past two weeks we've covered a few things. First, following Jesus means your relationship to this world is drastically and eternally altered. Second, following Jesus means every relationship relationship in your life is changed forever, particularly your relationship with your family and your closest relatives. Today what we will see is following Jesus means your relationship to your sin changes forever. And we pick it up in Luke chapter 13. This is a different kind of sermon because we're going to stay in one passage, but I'm actually going to reference many, many other verses from many other places. I don't normally do that, but we're going to primarily be in Luke 13. It says this, There were some present at that very time who told him, Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Okay, what are they talking about here? Well, there was headline news back then, just like there is today. And if there's some sort of a national uh, tragedy that happens in our country or something that someone does, you know, we all hear about it, right? Well, same thing back then. Something had happened at a point where Pilate, uh, who was the ruler of the land, had killed some Galileans either as they were on their way to make their sacrifices in the temple or while they were perhaps in the temple. So national outrage that a, a Roman overlord would kill a Galilean on the way to church back then. It would be the equivalent today of Obama ordering a Navy SEAL hit on a couple people as they're putting their envelopes in the offering, all right? I mean, you'd hear about it, am I right? Like, Fox News would be all over that. Navy SEAL strikes in church. Couple was putting their envelope in the offering. (gasps) So this uh, 
person came up to Jesus, these disciples, and, and said, Hey, uh, what do you think about this? Verse 2, surprise answer. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Then Jesus goes on to cite another one, or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. So now this is not, this is not a persecution thing where somebody kills someone. This is just a tragedy thing. Construction crew working in the southeast corner of Jerusalem, getting a tower built, and it just falls over. Right on, a tragedy. Jesus says, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus confronted the underlying unstated pride and self-righteousness in his listeners. He didn't say, oh, that's awful. And boy, are they, he didn't say, oh, that's tragic. He said, it's going to happen to you too. He used it as an opportunity to teach about the true tragedy, the true destruction that's going to come upon everyone who fails to repent. He used this awful emotion. The tower fell on them and they died. He said, yeah, that's kind of what it's going to be like for those who don't repent. And those people who were murdered as they were going to the temple, yeah, that's kind of what it's going to be like for those who never repent. Wow. Jesus used this as a teaching time to say, if you don't repent, you will perish. You see, they were thinking they were somehow better than those people. Oh, they must have had it coming. God must have been angry with them for such a tragic thing to happen to them. And Jesus said, no, no. He leveled the playing field and said, disaster looms over the head of every condemned sinner who fails to repent. The first thing Jesus teaches us today is this. Jot this down. I must repent or I will perish. I must repent or I will perish. And the Bible speaks of two basic kinds of repentance. One of them I would call saving repentance and the other one I would call daily repentance. Saving repentance means this. There's a moment in your life that changes eternity. One moment that changes eternity. You're walking along the road, and the Bible says that you have to realize that you are on the path of sin and against God's will. You have to stop, and the word repent literally means to turn back, to turn around, to, to change your mind. Uh, and it's a change of direction, and it's a change of affection. You're no longer on the road of sin. You're no longer in love with sin. You turn back to Jesus. That's called repentance. Hey, there should be a moment in your life, a period in your life, where you can point back to to say, I repented of my sins and I was saved. And it doesn't even matter if you were raised in a Christian home. Because what you noticed was, all along, there are all these people who had repented and had stories of turning toward Christ and away from sin. And one day, you woke up and said, hey... Hey, I'm going down this river of sin. Hey, I'm going to go over the disastrous falls. Hey, I'm going to break upon the rocks of eternity. And like them, I need to turn and repent. So saving repentance is a one-time thing that happens. It means the whole of your being is sinful, headed toward hell. 
And you have to turn in your entirety to Christ and ask him to save you. I must repent or I will perish. And Jesus wants you to know that you stand in grave danger if you don't repent. That's called saving repentance, but there's also daily repentance, which means even after you're saved, you still sin. And there's those daily turning away from sin, turning back toward Christ, you know, and, uh, and finding true progress. Uh, but this picture of being in grave danger, uh, the disaster looming large over you, it's something that you can't quite see because you haven't peeked into the heavenly realms. You haven't seen eternity, but he has. And he's just trying to warn you using this tower illustration and, the, and pilot's illustration. But the bottom line is you're in trouble. I saw a picture a few weeks ago and I thought, wow, this is really a person who's in trouble and it doesn't seem like they really understand how much trouble they're in. Check this out. This person is in big trouble. Like in the jaws of trouble. But she's kind of looking up like, this is fun. What? I see no danger. And Jesus is talking to people who are kind of like in the jaws, looking around. I don't see trouble. Saying, no, you're in major trouble and you need to repent or you will perish. Jesus teaches us about our relationship to sin. John 8, 34 to 36, we'll put it up on the screen. Jesus answered them saying this, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin, is there anyone in the room honest enough to admit by putting up your hand that you've committed at least one sin in your entire lifetime? At least one. Go ahead and put your hand up if you've... Okay, now some of you are lying, which means you've committed at least two sins in your lifetime. The one that you're not fessing up to and the one right now in church. (laughs) Everyone who commits sin is a, what's the word there? Slave to sin. My relationship to sin is called slavery. The slave does not remain in the house forever. Which means now, as if, as if you're in God's household, you could be sold, you could be out, you're not secured. But the Son, he's talking about himself, the Son of God remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. First, you have to understand the nature of your relationship to sin. We're really, in, in this day and age, we're really into defining relationships clearly. In fact, on Facebook, you have to define every relationship. This person wants to be your friend. Click yes or no. This person wants everyone to know that they're your cousin. Click yes. You know, and and uh, if you get engaged, guess what happens on Facebook? Here's what comes up. Yeah, you are now engaged, and you get everybody in your life, like, 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 right? Except for the person who liked you, and they dislike. <laughs> But you can clearly see the nature of your relationship to everyone in your life, right? Well, if sin had a Facebook page, guess what your relationship to sin would be? Here's what it would be. You are now enslaved by sin. Don't like. But it's true. The nature of your relationship to sin from birth is this. You are a slave to sin. Sin is personified as being your slave owner, the one who commands your actions, the one who wields authority over your soul. Sin is a chauffeur who's taking you somewhere. You're in the limo, the doors are locked, you can't get out. He's heading to a bridge that's out, accelerating daily. Sin is taking you somewhere. Jesus says he needs to free you from the word is slavery to sin. In other words, if you want to be a follower of Christ, you need to leave your shackles at the door. You cannot keep 
your love, loyalty, and your bondage to sin and become a follower of Christ. You need to leave the shackles behind. And your only hope of being freed from sin is turning to the one who has the key and asking the Son to free you. It's not like you try and fix your sin problem and then you come to Jesus, start going to church. The problem is you can't change. You might be offended by the thought of me saying that you're in bondage to sin, shackled to sin, mastered by sin, commanded by sin, condemned by sin. But the truth is you are. You can't change even if you wanted to. Oh, I've turned over a few new leaves. I've changed a few. Well, temporarily, yes. A few things, yes. But you can't fix your sin problem. You're shackled. Only Jesus can fix your sin problem. Write this down. Here's the truth. If I repent, Jesus frees me from slavery to sin. If I repent, Jesus frees me from slavery to sin. Only Jesus can do that. Now, in Luke chapter 15, verse 7, it says this. We'll put it up on the screen. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven. Wow, what creates parties in heaven? Heaven's a pretty happy place. What More joy in heaven over what? Over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Does this mean like one in a hundred people need to repent? No, a hundred in a hundred need to repent. 99 of a hundred think they're okay with God without repentance. So-called righteous, it's self-righteousness. Jesus commends the one in a hundred who knows that they need to repent and says it creates joy in heaven. Hey, do you agree with God over the true condition of your soul? Do you agree with the one who's seen straight into your heart, who knows your destiny? Do you agree with him that you are in slavery to sin? And do you agree that only Jesus can set you free? Or are you the righteous who thinks you need no repentance? If I repent, Jesus frees me from slavery to sin. Luke 5, 31 to 32, we'll put it up on the screen. Jesus answered them and said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus says you're a slave. Jesus says you're sick. Sinful, sick, slave. Stage 4, terminal cancer of the soul, he sees inside of you. It's great to have uh, dinner this past week uh, over Richard Green's house. And Richard told me about his career and looks at CAT scans, PET scans, looks at uh, x-rays. And the technology came, Carol was telling me, where he didn't even have to go into the office and see the film. They'd just send it over the computer and pop up and he can just send right back to the person sitting in the hospital waiting for the news what he sees. And they said to me, they said there's times where Richard, even though he's seen everything, something would come up on the screen and he would just say, Oh my. Oh my. And the person who's about to hear what he sees is not going to have a good day. But here you are, and the one person who can see into your soul says, Stage 4, terminal cancer of the heart. And there's some people who say, Eh. Eh. I don't need to repent. I'm not sick. Shackled to what? I like my sin. Sin is, sets me free. Sin is my fun. Sin is my liberation. You're the one who's in chains. Hey, I must repent or I will perish. Self-righteousness tells me I'm fine. Jesus tells me I'm a sick slave dying. Have you repented of your sin? 
Luke 5, 9 records when Peter, even after he had seen Jesus on a number of occasions, when Peter first said it. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. If you understand the nature of your relationship to sin, that you're shackled and bound and that you're sick and you're dying, then you understand that the Son of God came into the world to set you free and heal your calamity that only He can. Then you will fall at His feet and say, I am a sinful man. Save me. You must repent or you will perish. Well, that's saving repentance, but there's another kind. Jot this down. Here's the second point. I must not only repent or I'll perish. I must take drastic action to win the ongoing battle with sin. I must take drastic action to win the ongoing battle with sin. So this is the ongoing fight. This is the daily struggle with sin. You don't have to turn there. We'll put it on the screen, but Matthew 5.29 describes this. Jesus said this, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Everybody say, How many of you don't like blood? Like, don't like to see it? Don't like to, yeah. Those people in the crowd right now, when Jesus said this, they'd be like, For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Eh? Better that you walk around looking like a pirate with an eye patch then you get thrown into hell with both your eyes. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Everybody say it again. Cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Better off with a hook and an eye patch than with two eyes and two hands and headed for hell. I must take drastic action to win the ongoing battle with sin. Now, this could symbolize two things. It could symbolize your initial reaction when you understand the true condition of your sin, your initial reaction to do whatever it takes to sever yourself from your sin so that you have a Savior. It's painful, it's bloody, it's life-altering, and that's exactly what it's going to feel like when you leave your life. Sin's not going to go quietly. Your sin is going to kick and scream and beg to keep lordship over you. It's going to be a fight the whole way. More like extracting a bloody tooth from the jaw. That's what it's going to be like. But it also symbolizes our ongoing fight. And if a Christian detects the source of sin, when sin has crept into my life again, what am I to do? I'm, going to, I'm supposed to take drastic, bloody, painful action, whatever it takes to get rid of it from my life. Drastic action. He's describing self-amputation. It's gross. It's powerful. And it's supposed to drive home the point that whatever it takes, you need to get the sin out of your life. When I think of self-amputation, I think of a man by the name of Aaron Ralston. Are you familiar with his story? Back in 2003, he went out and for a mountain, biked for 15 miles and, and was an outdoorsman and loved to be outdoors and usually told people where he was going, but this time just didn't think he had to, wasn't planning on being out long. And uh, at one point, as he was out in the middle of the canyons, and he was walking through a canyon that was three feet wide, and um, it wasn't even the hard part. He's going to have to rappel down after that, but jumps over three boulders, and, and like the third boulder, as he jumps over it, the boulder rolled, and he lost his balance, and the boulder rolled onto his hand and pinned his hand up against the canyon wall. 
And he tried to free himself um, initially by chipping away at the canyon wall with his, he, he said he had a cheap pocket knife that uh, you could buy at a dollar store. It wasn't, it wasn't anything good. Then he tried to lift the boulder. Later they found out it was an 800-pound boulder that was holding his hand up against that wall. He tried to use his rappelling gear to lift it up. He could not get out. He was stuck in that canyon. Two days went by. Three days went by. Four days went by. Five days went by. No food, no water, freezing cold temperatures at night. He knew he was going to die. So he decided to do the only thing he could do. He used his pocket knife and he cut his own arm off and then got out of the canyon and was rescued. We have pictures just of the canyon. They made a movie out of it. Here's the picture of the movie. It's called 127 Hours. Um, And there's kind of a reenactment here. Here's a picture of what the canyon looked like. There he's just trying to get over a boulder, just trying to get through this narrow canyon. Here's another shot of it. Uh, And it should have been an easy trek, and there he was, pinned. Are you claustrophobic? Pinned in that for five days, and he knew he was going to die. They said when the movie was shown across the country, they said that all over the country, people were passing out when they were watching the part of him doing this. Passing out! at the fake reenactment of a guy cutting off his own arm. Like it was an actor who wasn't cutting off his arm. And they're like, I can't take it! (laughs) Ambulance. (laughs) The thought of it. And Jesus draws from this sick, horrific idea of cutting off your own limb to say, you're there. You're in that canyon. You're pinned against that wall. Your sin will kill you will drag you to hell eternally. You need to be free and you need to do whatever it takes to find freedom. Wow. Wow. It's that serious. It's that fatal. It's that hopeless. Whatever it takes, I need to get out of that canyon. Now, some people think they've repented, but they really haven't, you see, because we like to play games with our sin. And as I meet and counsel with people, there's some telltale signs that I've observed when I know someone is not truly repentant over their sin. You can write these down. I have not repented if. I've not repented if. Write them down and then I'll hit each one. I've not repented if I manage my sin, endorse my sin, explain my sin, defend my sin, and flat out love my sin. What does it mean to manage my sin? It means I try and convince myself I've got my sin on a leash. I've put up some boundaries in my life so that I don't go past unto sin. I've got this under control. You don't understand. I'm not as bad as other people. I've got this. Yeah, and I've said in the past that having sin on a leash is like having a pet Tyrannosaurus Rex. All right? It's going to devour you. Doesn't matter what cage you build. Okay? I've seen Jurassic Park. It's going to eat you. And anytime someone talks about their sin, like it's their little pet and they're controlling it, they're deluded and they're not repentant. I'm not repentant if I endorse my sin, which means even though somebody else has an issue of conscience, I try and get them to do what I'm doing. Oh yeah, you don't understand. What are you, goody two-shoes? And I'm pushing them because I want to endorse what I'm doing because I feel guilty about it. If I could get you on my team, then maybe it's not so bad. I'm not repentant if I'm managing my sin, if I'm endorsing my sin, if I'm explaining or rationalizing my sin. And I have heard some doozies. Everyone has an explanation. Even the most vile behavior I've heard about from people. 
there's an explanation, and it's never good. People who are sinning and actually thinking that their sin is leading them out of sin. If I explain it or rationalize it, the big one is if I defend my sin, if I defend it. Some of the most tender-hearted, soft-spoken, kindest people in our church, I've had to meet with them from time to time, and when I touch their sin, the look on their face, the tone in their voice, the demeanor and disposition, the anger that wells up. How dare you touch my sin? Who do you think you are? Telltale sign you're not repentant. When someone touches your sin, you're not repentant. The anger, the self-righteous outrage, um, and finally, the love. I love my sin. When someone's talking about their sin, like this is going to be one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life to stop this, to let this go. I know. Self-pity. You really love that sin, don't you? Uh, Because the truth is, one of the hardest things you'll ever do in life is let the sin stay in your life. That's the truth. Letting it go will lead you to freedom. But when people talk about their sin like they love it, when they defend it, when they explain it, when they endorse it, when they manage it, they're not repentant. You have to understand how your relationship to sin changes. You see, when you are saved in a moment, in an instant, eternally irreversible things happen to you. Um, You are set free from the power of sin. doesn't mean you're never going to sin again. It means sin no longer has mastery over your soul. Sin no longer commands your actions. You can rise up in victory over time with the help of God's Spirit. Extended seasons of victory over any sin that has been shackling you. Okay, it doesn't happen in an instant, but it can happen because the power of sin is broken. You are no longer a slave to sin. Your relationship has changed. But here's the thing. Sin no longer has power over you, but sin still has a voice. Which is why, check this out, Romans 6, 1 to 11, we'll put it up on the screen, says, Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. In other words, if sin's on the throne, it's because you welcomed him back up there. Sin is no longer your king when you're saved. He's simply one voice in the council chambers of your heart lobbying for a vote. That's all sin is now. And every decision you make, Aaron, you know, has some decisions to make this week. And sin's going to be like, well, I've got an idea. Aaron, I think you should do this. And Aaron's going to be like, huh, I wonder if that's a good idea. And if Aaron gives sin the vote, the voice, then sin gets the power. He's letting sin get back into the council chambers of his heart. But he doesn't have to. The voice will not go away. You're free from the power of sin. You're not free from the uh, presence of sin and the persuasion of sin. You get that? Power's gone, but the persuasion, the voice of sin, will persist for the rest of this life. Now, praise the Lord, you're also free from the penalty of sin. Power is broken, penalty is canceled. Anyone who is in Christ Jesus will never pay for any sin they've committed in their entire life. I don't know about you, but that is amazing news. Sins of the past, sins of the present, sins of the future, paid in full at the cross by the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow! Forgiven entirely and completely by grace. But the presence is still there. So Jesus said, I must repent or I'll perish. 
Jesus said, I must take drastic action to win the ongoing battle with sin. And here's the third one. You need help. If you're going to break free from patterns of sin in your life, you need help. Write this down. I must help others win the battle with sin. I must help others win the battle with sin. This is what we would call walking repentance or daily repentance. And it's so sad when Christians think, oh boy, I struggle with sin. I can't tell anybody because they won't think any. They'll think that I'm, they'll think that I'm, what, human? They'll think, what are you trying to convince people you are, Jesus? <laughs> wow, I found another Jesus. <laughs> she never struggles with sin. He never confesses that he has some setbacks. And I think in our small groups, we're set up to help people get their sin in the light and make progress in it. And it's so sad when year after year after year during our accountability time in small group, what are you struggling with? Time management. I'm really struggling with time management. I just can't get my schedule together, really. That's the big one, huh? Wow, that's really had you crippled for three straight years. Man, man, oh man. The truth is you don't want to confess to people the truth. Because you're afraid. You're afraid that if they know, they'll condemn you. But here's the thing. God wants you to find help from others in your battle with sin. How do I know that? Well, James 5.16, we'll put it up on the screen, says this. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. You can confess to somebody in your group. You can confess to your group leader. You can confess to one of the pastors. You can confess to your spouse. But if you keep it bottled up in your heart, if you keep it in the darkness, it will grow, it will expand, it will get worse and worse and worse. There's really only two patterns that people follow. You feel conviction of sin, and then either you repent and confess it and embrace accountability, repent, confess, embrace accountability, or you feel conviction and you deny it and you defend it, and you damage your heart and others. Sin always destroys. And God, when David refused to confess his sin, he said, your hand was heavy upon me. My bones wasted away in agony. And that might be you. Conviction, but you're denying it, you're defending it, and you're damaging yourself and others. It is a battle, and it will be a battle every day. 1 Peter 2.11 makes it clear. It says this, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which, listen, war against your soul. You wake up to a war zone every day. And sin wants to take you out. When I think of battles, you know, with our theme of to boldly go, and I think of great space battles, I think in Star Wars, I think it's episode two and all the Jedis were in that small coliseum and they were surrounded and here we got a picture of it. When I think war, I think that's war. And they're about to go down in flames and lose, and then Master Yoda shows up and he blows everybody to smithereens and saves the day. Uh, But listen, this is what you wake up to every day. There is an enemy surrounding you who wants to lead you into sin. And don't tell yourself, oh, it must be unusual that a Christian like me still struggles with temptation and sin. No, welcome to earth for now. And if you deny it, the Bible says if you deny your with sin, you make God to be a liar. But if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you. 1 John chapter 1 and 2. You need help. You need help. You have to confess your sin to one another. Galatians 6.1 says this, brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, that word for caught is the word for trap, like a hunter's trap. 
you're trapped. It's the same thing like uh, with, that, uh, with the hiker whose arm was trapped up against the side of the wall. That's you. If anyone is trapped in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. What business is, is it of other people what's going on in my life? They don't need to know. Jesus knows. No, they need to know. If you don't tell someone about it, you're not going to find help and healing. I have to help others in their battle with sin. We need to repent, but why don't we? Why don't we? Well, I think there's three reasons why we don't repent. The first one is pride. We just don't want other people to know we've been wrong. We don't want to suffer the looks that other people will give us. We're guarding our own ego and glory. Frankly, that's deception. We want other people to think more highly of us than we've deserved. Pride. We don't admit it secondly because of self-righteousness. We think because by comparison I'm better than other people, I don't have a problem. Well, I'm better than her. I'm not doing it as much as him. I'm far better off than that person. And if you're pointing to other people to try and justify your sin, that's called self-righteousness. And you won't repent because you don't see a need. Pride, self-righteousness, and the third one is fear. Fear. See, because even though you'll be forgiven, the truth coming out will have consequences. And you know that. But the consequences of staying in your sin are far greater than the consequences of bringing your sin into the light. See, you have a gracious Savior who wants to free you. He wants to get you out of that canyon. And if you come to Him with your sin, you'll find freedom, you'll find forgiveness, you'll find grace, you'll find strength, you'll find love, you'll find acceptance, you'll find help. But if you stay in your sin and cling to your sin and embrace your sin and trust your sin, it'll destroy you. It'll destroy your marriage. It'll destroy your family. It'll destroy a church. I must help others win the battle with sin. Thankfully, we have people in our church whose stories can be told now. We had somebody in my small group years ago. He'd come to small group every week, and his problem wasn't that he was closed off, he'd actually share with us, I'm going through some stuff and I've got sin in my life and my wife's really upset about it. One year, two years goes by and he's confessing it, but he's really not wanting to change. Um, Sin, repent, repeat. Sin, repent, repeat. Sin, repent, repeat. And uh, finally he had a wake-up call. His wife just one day left, ran off and left uh, with his child. And um, he texted me on a Sunday morning, Pastor Ryan, I've got to go, I've got to find my wife. She left. Wake up call. Wake up call. Now he needs to change. Tracked her down, found her. She had actually left the country. Found her. Reconciled with her. Truly repented of his sin. I didn't know anything that was going on. He just disappeared. People in our small group, where'd he go? I don't know. Where'd he go? I don't know. And uh, after three years, he just emailed me this last week. He said, Pastor Ryan, listen, I just want you to know what's going on in my life. God has done a work in my heart. I was playing games. You guys tried to warn me. That really shook me. And I finally repented. And God has given me victory in my heart over sins that enslaved me. He said, I've been in victory for three years. He said, God has fixed my marriage. He said, I'm actually feeling called into ministry right now. I'm taking classes online at Moody Bible Institute. I feel like God wants me to be a pastor. Well, no wonder the enemy was ravaging his soul. And look at how faithful God was to embrace this child when he finally turned from his sin and wanted to make it right. Wow. 
And he said, thank you, you guys helped me. Hey, I must help others win the battle with sin. We need help. We all need help. We can't make it alone. Sin is too strong, too powerful, too blinding for you to win the battle alone. That's true for me. That's true for you. One of the most, I've told all the pastors at our church, one of my greatest insights over the past 12 months as a follower of Christ and as a minister is just how impressive sin is. To the person who's caught in it, they talk about it like a loving pet. They talk about it like they have found this companion who will bring them happiness. And they talk about it as a loyal and faithful part of their life. And everyone else in the room sees blood-stained teeth on this, this creature that wants to kill its owner. And everyone else sees it and tries to tell the person, and the person doesn't see it. Sin is so impressive and so blinding and so persuasive. They just don't believe you. I have been amazed at how powerful and blinding sin can be. It's made me fear for my own life. Because when I walk down that road, the path to sin, there comes a point where I can't turn back. Someone has once said that sin is like entering down a hallway. And at the beginning, there's all these doors and windows of escape. People shouting in the windows, leave, stop escape. And the further you walk down this path, the longer you go down with your sin, the the higher the windows go up and the fewer there are. And the less you hear the voices of people trying to urge you to stop, you're slamming them out. And then at the end of the hallway, there's maybe one last final window before your destruction. That's how repentance works. And I must help others win the battle with sin. So Jesus says, first, I must repent or I'll perish. Second, I must take drastic action to win the ongoing battle with sin. Third, I must help others win the battle with sin. And here's the last one as we head back to Luke chapter 13. I must respond promptly to God's call to repentance. Write that down. I must respond promptly to God's call to repentance. Jesus shares a parable with people here to help them understand how God is treating them. He says this. He told this parable, verse 6. The man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. He said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? So characters in this story now, you've got the field owner, you've got the vine dresser, you've also got the fig tree. Uh, I don't know much about horticulture, but apparently fig trees take three years before they turn out any fruit. So after year one and year two, finally year three, it's time. Time to see fruit now. Um, And the vine dresser, the owner, is obviously very angry because the time to see fruit is now. But the vine dresser says, give it, you know what? Give it one more year. Verse 8. Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure, so fertilizer. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is a lesson for you about your sin. God's patience will run out. He's faithfully right now digging around the soil in your heart. He's faithfully right now fertilizing it in any way possible, trying to get life and growth to come forth. But his patience will run out. For the Christian and for the non-Christian, there will come a point where you can't repent anymore. Destruction will befall you. Judgment will come. But thankfully, the Father is here seen taking action. Loosening the soil, waiting. And the people that God waits for in the Bible, man, he he waited a year for David after he murdered 
and committed adultery. He got a year and God finally brought it to light. If you read through the, the churches in the book of Revelation that were having problems, Jesus said one of them, the church, had a woman who basically started a prostitution ministry in the church. Imagine that announcement. Here's Betty. Betty's going to begin the prostitution team at Harvest Palace. Please stop by her counter in the lobby if you want more information. This is what was going on. And what did Jesus say? He said, I've given her time to repent. Like push the lightning bolt button, right? <laughs> no, I, I've given her time. He said, but now I'm going to throw her on a bed of suffering. Hey, don't mistake God's patience with his endorsement. Don't think you're getting away with it. You must respond promptly to God's call to repentance or judgment will come. Yes, he's waiting patiently. Yes, he's working faithfully. But you must repent or sin and judgment will come. Yeah, but all my sin was paid for at the cross. I'm forgiven. Uh, Don't mistake saving repentance for daily repentance. Saving repentance will not get you out of daily repentance. You see? Ananias and Sapphira showed up to church and told a big old lie of where they got their money from and how much they got from the land. And God killed them at church because of their deception. Judgment begins in the household of God, and God will not tolerate sin in the lives of his people. So this is true for non-Christians. This is true of Christians. The bottom line is your sin has trapped you. Your sin has pinned you up against the side of the canyon wall, and your Savior wants to set you free. And the time to repent, the time to let your shackles go, is now. I shared the story earlier about Aaron Ralston. And Aaron Ralston later, long after he was rescued and recovered, went back to the place where he was trapped. And with a reporter there interviewing him, he told step by step how he was freed. And I want to show you the end of this interview and his reaction when he reflected on that moment when he was finally free. And I want you to think about your own sin. And I want you to think about what Jesus is saying to you. Because I think what Aaron says about his own release is what will be true of you. Go ahead and show that video but I knew that that was the hard part. And it was only a few more moments of work after that. And then, boom, and I wasn't even attached anymore, and I fell down like this, and I, 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 I was free. You were reborn. This is the happiest moment of my life. And it's, it's funny to think about it being, there, there will never be a more powerful experience for me. Jesus says that he's willing to set us free, but we have to repent. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I know that The cost of discipleship is great, but the price of staying in our sin is even greater. Jesus, we know you came into the world. You lived the perfect life. You alone were the sinless Son of God. And yet, you know the penalty of sin, for you died on the cross. You were punished for each one of us. That's why you were there. And only because you paid the penalty... Only because you were thrown into a tomb and you died in our place. Only because you rose again can you be the one who sets us free. You alone can grant us release from sin. 
Lord, the day will come when each one of us stands in judgment. And I know there are some here right now who stepped into this room this morning condemned in their sins, enslaved. The gavel will fall. They will be declared guilty. They will be thrown in hell forever. But here and now, the Son of God stands with the key of release. Here and now, Jesus offers a pardon. And Lord, I know there are some who are ready to receive that. I just want to pray with them right now, Lord. I just want to pray with those people who know that they are guilty, who know that they need to be free, who feel the pain of bondage. They may want to pray along with me saying this, Father in heaven, I'm guilty as charged. I know the bondage of sin. I know the shame. I know the guilt. I know the fear. And I turn to you right now and just ask for you to free me and forgive me. Save me and release me to the life that you have planned for me and help me to know that I'll go to heaven with you forever. Lord, I know that there are also your children who have long ago been forgiven and released, but temptation still comes, and perhaps they are caught, perhaps they're trapped again, wondering how they got into the canyon, wondering why they would even go there. They've been playing games, but now they understand that they need to be set free again. Father, I just pray that your children would be honest with you, knowing that the cross is for sin, knowing that they need to bring their sin back to you, You already know about it. You're not surprised. I pray that they would have the courage to bring their sin into your presence and to ask again for freedom, for forgiveness, for release, for joy and peace. Lord, I pray that as your people come to you asking for freedom, that you would set them free indeed. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Amen.